You are listening to Creation Talk, a creation.com podcast, proclaiming the truth to honor the Creator while providing credible answers. Hi, welcome back. I'm Gary Bates, CEO of Creation Ministries International US. Today I'm joined by scientist, biologist, Dr. Robert Carter. Hello, everybody. So, Rob, I mentioned programmed filling. Uh, People are probably saying, what is that? But before we talk about program filling, we're going to talk about something else to set the groundwork, and that's natural selection. Because programmed filling is, in a sense, a denial of natural selection. It's a term uh, and a, a theory, a hypothesis, if you like, that's being developed in creationist circles. It's become, I would say, semi-popular. Yeah, now, when I say this, about it. yeah, when I say this, by the way, when it's in creationist circles. We should remember that even creationists, like evolutionists, we have different working models. As my old mentor, Dr. Carl Whelan, used to say to me, uh, hang loose to models, hang tight to the Bible. So whenever we're dealing with past events, of course, when we try to step outside what the Bible says with scientific models, that's exactly what they are, scientific models. And I think I said on our last podcast, we're going to discover something tomorrow we might not know today, and that could also change our models. So we need to hang loose with some of those models. I've got some notes here today. But natural selection, Rob, let me just ask you, is it real or not? Well, natural selection is not just real. It's also not anti-biblical. I mean, just last month or two, I wrote an article called Natural Selection in Paradise. It's on creation.com, where I simply illustrated, here's how it works, here's how it's part of the biblical model, here's why it's not proof of evolution, and here's why it fits into the Bible. Well, key point there, it's not evolution. Now, you and I, we go out on ministry, and particularly we have people and teens coming up to us and saying, but what about natural selection? And we kind of say, well, yeah, what? But parents need to understand when they get off to college, the lecturers are literally going to say, look, we see creatures change over time. Therefore, evolution is true. Now, we do see creatures change over time. We sure do. We would look at those small changes, what they would actually call microevolution. We don't like to use the term evolution at all. No, we don't. But natural selection is no friend of evolution, macroevolution. This is kind of the microbes to microbiologists, big scale, big picture evolution that people talk about. Why is that? Because natural selection can only remove what already exists. Given, you know, some range of variation within a species, natural selection doesn't create anything. It just removes some genes and keeps other genes. So it's a culling process. It's not a creative process. Yeah, exactly. Can only select from what's available. Now, natural selection can cause some organisms to be specialized for their environment. That's where we get the word speciation from. And often we use the example, which everybody understands is dogs because we own dogs and we have different types of sizes and varieties of dogs. But if we were to, you know, throw a truckload of dogs in Alaska in the frozen wilderness there, and within any population, we have a variation. We might have short-haired, medium-haired dogs and and long-furred dogs. Obviously, the long-furred ones have a survival advantage. And so- In that environment. Yeah. So- Nature selects and might cull out the medium or the short-furred dogs. Now, that's the stumbling block, isn't it, for people who subscribe to programmed filling because they're saying, well, nature's not some conscious living entity that can think or select anything. But isn't it just a convenient term? I mean, the evolutionists have kind of defined the term to select 
what we actually see happening. And when those long-furred dogs reproduce, what we've done, as you've said, is culled the information for short and medium fur out of the population. But what about <clears throat> the term natural selection? As I said, it's not some thinking living being. No, it's, it's difficult because in English, we don't have an easy phrase to say something that happens all by itself according to the laws of science that God ordained in the beginning. We just say it's natural. And yeah, that's hinting at nature and ancient you know, Roman and Greek philosophy, fine, but it's not, no one is saying that nature is alive. No one is saying that nature is conscience. There's nothing there and never has been there. And all the big evolutionists from the beginning are on record saying that, no, we don't think nature is a living force. Yeah. But Darwin chose that word, wasn't a really good word, natural selection. One of his friends came up with survival of the fittest, which is also not a good phrase because how do you define the most fit? It's not the biggest, the strongest, or the fastest. It's the one who has the most number of offspring. Yeah, bingo. It's about reproduction. That's what it's natural reproduction. selection is all about. So, yeah. But in that process, some organisms will die off. But it's those who are most under extreme fit. cases. Yeah, yeah, we're we're talking about extreme cases. I mean, natural yeah. selection is probably going to be more subtle to that than that because it's going to happen across multiple generations that you and I yeah. might not be we have, around. We have, we have thousands of years to allow slight differences to accumulate, and so some organisms can reproduce a little better than others. Okay, fine. Yeah. So those who are most fit, most likely to reproduce, they're going to outnumber you know the competition in some environments. Now yeah. you mentioned though. We have had some examples, because I know some advocates of program feeling saying we don't see natural selection happening, but I remember one we featured in Creation Magazine, which was uh, during the Second World War in London, people were going into the London underground tunnels to use as bomb shuttles. Yeah. And what happened is mosquitoes followed them down, and within yeah. about 50 years or so, those mosquitoes that originally came on the, from the surface had now lost the use of their eyes and were, you know, being pesky, bite, biting people in, in, the, in the tube in the London Underground. So that's a case where selection occurred. But here's the thing. Was the organism better off or worse off kind of genetically because it had lost the use of its yeah, eyes? It, it, lost it lost something very important that is very complicated. And the evolution would say it took millions of years to evolve. How could it lose it that quickly? And then once it lost it, yeah, it has an advantage in that microenvironment, but those same mosquitoes, if they go on the outside, they'd be completely outcompeted by the mosquitoes that can see. Right. So, no, so friend, no friend of evolution here because no. something got broken, surely. Yeah. And evolution requires an input of new, lots of genetic information to create new traits, you know, to yeah. give legs to fish and so on and so forth. Yeah. So, it's easier to break something, right, than to create something yep. new, as we always say. And and that's almost every example that we see in the scientific literature of natural selection is some organism that has some defect actually has an advantage in a small environment, a microenvironment. Like classic one we used in, um, oh, Darwin talked about it. We use it in Evolution's Achilles heels. On Madeira Island, there are some beetles that have no wings because the beetles with wings, they get blown out to sea. On this little island. So the ones who have a defect can't fly. They actually stick around more. And so they're much more likely to be there for the next generation to produce little baby beetles. So at CMI, we believe natural selection is real, despite yeah. the claims of evolutionists that somehow we deny it. And that's a point, that's right. by the way, to deny it, we'd be fighting on another front. 
I actually like to subscribe to natural selection because I point out it is no friend of evolution. Nope. Yes, your saviour, natural selection, is real, but it's not producing the new information. It can only select from what's available. And it fits beautifully into the biblical model also. Yeah, it does, actually. So it's, it's we completely say it. This is just fine with us. Oh, it doesn't work for you. So it's actually a good argument for us and a bad argument for them. So the concept biblically we can look at this is God, I, I often say God has front-loaded yeah. enough information onto the DNA to enable it to survive in post-fall, post-flood environments all around the world. And we believe that's what we see happening. Now, program yeah. filling is a variation of this in some respects yes. because it focuses more on the organism rather than the environment kind of enacting a change. Do you want to just explain the organism-centric kind of model that program filling is, as we understand it, of course? We'll, we'll split program filling into a couple of different branches here. And we'll start off with the idea that organisms interact with their environment according to their God-given abilities. And that honestly is brilliant. The organism-centric model is really smart and very biblical. And so instead of talking about climate change and whatnot affecting organisms, you say, no, the organisms are responding to the environment because they're really complicated and God engineered them with all these amazing parts. And it kind of is a, it gives glory to God as we're focusing on the complexity of life idea. And that is really smart. But it doesn't go as far as some advocates would like it to go. So yeah, take a mouse, take a beetle, take a bird. They have environmental stimuli coming in. And God has given them all these sensors, eyes and temperature sensors and, you know, all sorts of, of ways to interact with their environment and sense environmental stimuli. And then that organism can make a choice. Do I want to live on the top of the tree or the bottom of the tree? Do I want to dig in the ground or live on the surface? Do I want to, you know, go north or go south? All these environmental cues the organisms can respond to. Cool idea. Wonderful, but it's limited. Well, there's the area where I think, you know, it, according to the title of the talk that I threw in there, that it does, does have, have legs. legs in a way because in a, way. a new area of genetics is called epigenetics. Yeah. And this is the idea where our genes or, or specialized genes and genes, if you remember, are a set of instructions can be switched on or off. Looks like mm -hmm. we could possibly, you know, most likely get them through inheritance. So again, yep. simplified, I always say to people, epigenetics is a little bit like, you know, you are what you eat or where you live, that the organism can switch on genes according to its environment or certain types of foods that might trigger these gene switches, et cetera. Any more on that? Well, epigenetics is a really cool thing and it's really exciting and it messes up Darwinian evolution. I wrote an article a couple of years ago about how um, epigenetics is no friend of Darwin. Uh, there'll be a link in the show notes, I'm sure, once I, I don't remember exactly the full title. But the article is basically saying that there are switches in organisms that turn genes on and turn genes off. And they are designed to cause changes in organisms. So a lot of the so-called natural selection and adaptation that we see is actually, there's no genetic change happening. There's epigenetic switches turning on, turning off, maybe changing the coat color making an animal larger or smaller, and, and things like that. But that's an organism-centric kind of model, Very isn't it? Very organism-centric, yeah, absolutely. And it can cause change over time. But the thing is, let's say that you have a switch that can help you tolerate hot or cold. Maybe you're a mouse or something, and you're living in a very cold environment. Well, you, if you never have to turn that switch back to, I like warmth, 
and it's always on I like cold, what happens if a mutation occurs and breaks that switch? Then you can't go back to the original environment. You're stuck in the I like cold, I tolerate cold. If you go to a warm environment, you're going to die because your, your genome can't switch back that gene. End of species. And, or the end of the individual. And so what we see is species get pigeonholed into more and more narrow environmental areas. And they can't necessarily go back to the way they used to be. And some of this pigeonholing is mutations breaking things, breaking things that aren't necessary. Because if you don't need something, why would you continue to carry it? A mutation breaks that and you're still alive. Just the same way um, blind cave fish. Yeah, it's going to mention that one. Well, when it was coming up, I'm sure it's the next example you're going to mention. You take a fish, put it in a cave. It doesn't need eyeballs. In fact, eyeballs are bad because if the fish scrapes a rock, its eye gets infected and then the fungus kills the fish. If it doesn't have eyeballs at all, it is at an advantage. Well, once you're in that cave and maybe, maybe there's even a genetic switch that as a fish is growing up, if it never sees any sunlight, the, the switch flips and it doesn't grow any eyes. But then that switch breaks. The fish will never have eyes again. Even if those fish, you know, get born in the, in outside the cave, they can't have eyes because they have broken, they're defective, they're, they're, they're degraded from the original. Well, let me ask you though, because programmed yeah. filling, okay, my understanding is, is that God has basically programmed every change that we would see in all of these organisms, correct? I don't want to put words in people's mouths. And they're not going to say that because there is this thing called mutation and everyone acknowledges mutations happen and some mutations are bad. And I would say that, and we're going to talk about this at the end, prior to the fall, yes, all the changes that, are, that organisms would, would go through over time would have been pre-programmed by God to allow adaptation and organismal choice. Well, I wanted to ask you that because obviously we don't okay. want to oversimplify and misrepresent. No, so that's why I'm kind of throwing you know, these uh, kind of devil's advocate's questions. But let's use the blind cavefish example. Okay. Because obviously, I believe, you know, nothing happens unless God allows it anyway. I mean, he is sovereign, right? Mm -hmm. But is he ordaining, in, in a sense, every single change? Because blind cavefish, again, it's another example of breaking something. So did God actually program that particular change for something to be blind so that it could survive better in that environment. See, I would have a little bit of a, a problem with that concept if that's what program filling is advocating. I'm not sure, and we're not going to get into the theology of God foreordaining or not foreordaining things. That's really outside CMI scope. But we can see, the, re the listener can see how this gets into these deep theological areas pretty quickly. Yeah, surely nothing happens. Nothing takes God by surprise. Absolutely and, and true. He knew, and he knew that blind cave fish was going to occur. I'm certainly not yes. getting into you know, Calvinism or Arminianism there, etc. But point being is that God allows it to happen, but did he program it to happen that way or not? Or is it a result of, and here's the key you mentioned, the fall also? Because in the fall, you and I sitting here now and mutations are accumulating in our bodies as they are with yep. every other organism and we're going to die and people and animals are going to be born with various mutations that express themselves in a large morphological way like blindness, for example. Yeah. I would like to say that God, when he designed organisms, he did some engineering blueprints 
and said, here's the organism, and here's everything the organism can tolerate. And if those tolerations are exceeded, the organism is going to die. That includes not just the environment, but also genetically. This can change, this can change, this can change, no problem. We have blue eyes, we have brown eyes. Okay, we have brown bears, black bears, and white bears, no problem. But you can also have something like a blind cave fish, or salamander, or cricket, or centipede, which we find in caves all over the world. I don't think God programmed the loss of sight in all those different species. I think in the wild, fish are often born blind, but they get gobbled up right away because they can't see predators. Yeah. So we have mutations occurring in a population. Well, if some of those fish go into a cave, you know what? Eventually one of them's going to be born blind because it's just a natural process of mutation attacking the, the visual system. If it's an engineering argument, program filling is an engineering argument. What about all the thousands of, for want of a better expression, good fish that were in that environment that now did not survive? Is that part yeah, of the, the engineer, engineering argument that they are not going to survive in that environment and that's part of that engineering application? See, I, 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 to be honest, I have a little question. bit of a problem with that concept, you know. Yeah, interesting question. Of the, you know, I don't know, tens of thousands of fish that get washed into this cave, one of them picks up the ability to not have eyeballs because of a defective eyeball-producing gene. Right. It wasn't in the initial population. It, it, it's, it's a genetic mistake that happens. So is and that all program- the other ones have to die. No, I don't think so. Or natural selection. It's a natural selection argument. It's something that's happening all by itself. It's not written into the code. It's something that breaks in the code. Now, the fish can still survive because it hasn't completely exceeded its design specifications, but it's not written into the code initially. The fish did not choose to not make eyeballs. There wasn't a biochemical reaction inside the fish that said, oh, 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 turn off the eyes. It's not the way it works. Right. So you're saying in that case, it might not be an epigenetic argument. You can't use epigenetics for every single example we see across the world. I mean, the development of sickle cell anemia in humans. Sickle cell anemia allows you to more likely survive malarial infections, but it's a terrible debilitating disease and it's definitely a mutation and because it's only in a small subpopulation of all people, clearly it wasn't put into Adam and Eve. It's a mutation that happened later on in human history. Rob, we're talking about this is the issue, isn't it? We said natural selection in most cases is very subtle. It could go through yeah. thousands, hundreds or thousands of generations before we see the big morphological changes. So when we're looking at creatures today, that's all we're looking at. We don't have a history of how polar bears came to be, for example. We can make some assumptions about that, but we're only dealing with organisms today. So in that respect, whether it's a program filling camp or the natural selection camp, aren't we kind of making our best guesses in a way? Yeah, there's a lot of assumption, a lot of guessing because we're talking about history. But when we look at things today, we can, we can make some good estimations and some good educated guesses of how things came to be. And when we see like hereditary blindness or hereditary deafness or Huntington's disease or some really bad mutation, clearly that wasn't an organism choice. It was something applied to the organism after the fact. The one thing we can say, Rob, we're kind of looking through a glass darkly, we are in the genetics revolution. And one thing we do know is that natural selection genetically is no friend of evolution. As we said, it's a culling process to repeat. At the best, it might recombine genes, give an organism a a favorable advantage. But we're not going to get, you know, that new information that requires the, the huge leaps, you know, for dinosaurs to suddenly grow wings, et cetera. 
Now, we also yeah. know this because in the real world, we do something called artificial selection. Everybody knows yep. that. We breed dogs with, you know, we might want to produce miniature breeds that are popular today. So we take a small dog, breed it with another small dog, and eventually you're culling out the information for largeness. And so we know we can do that artificially ourselves. So there's no reason to presume that nature is not really doing that as well. So again, it's no friend of evolution and it fits in the biblical worldview. So all the examples that Darwin was using were trivial and biblical. He really had nothing to say except his assumption that given enough millions of years and enough natural selection that any change can happen. Yeah. But that's nothing more than wishful thinking. That's the big ones is what he was saying, which is what we don't see. So here's a question, and we'll probably close here. What about natural selection before the fall? Okay. And does programmed filling have any more legs before the fall than after the fall? Because I think personally it gets a problem post-fall, but I'm not so sure about pre-fall. Well, I think programmed filling would be the mechanism God would use pre-fall, before the fall. Because everything is an organism choosing this or choosing that. I want to live here. I want to live there. And, you know, as river deltas build up and as, as uh, shallow ponds silt up, natural selection is going to have an effect. There will be environmental changes even in a world without death. And so God would have put into the organisms that he made the ability to adapt to these new changes. Fine. But once sin and death come into the world, once that happens, all bets are off. Picture um, the ice age that happened after the flood. We have organisms that are moving up into Siberia. And at this point, it's a temperate grassland. And there are bunny rabbits, and there are mice, and there are fruit trees, and there are giant elephants we call woolly mammoths, and there's foxes, and there's deer, and there's all these, these organisms. But then the environment changed pretty quickly. It looks like within a decade or so, we went from Ice Age conditions to, pre, to post-Ice Age conditions. And during the Ice Age, Siberia wasn't frozen over. And then it did freeze. And the reason we're finding you know, half-rotten frozen animals in the permafrost is because the environment changed very quickly. And those organisms did not have the ability to choose where they wanted to live. It was too late. They were thousands of miles away from the warmest area that they could, they could get to. Well, there's another okay. factor here, isn't there? Because post-flood, I mean, the Ice Age was after the flood, but post-flood, yep. we've got lots of new landscapes, lots of perhaps no, little islands that didn't exist before. I mean, I'm thinking about yeah. in, the, in Indonesia and those uh, Southeast Asian islands where we've got lots of kind of dwarf-sized animals that are only located on yeah. one island. So there's an isolation argument. Now, how did that occur? I mean, humans, Homo floresiensis, one of the advocates for a, you know, the classic missing link, we believe are just, you know, is a case of dwarfism amongst an isolated yeah. population of humans. That's on an Indonesian island as well. Yeah, island dwarfism is a very common phenomenon. There's also a couple examples of island gigantism like the moa and the elephant bird. But we have a lot of examples of island dwarfism. Now, picture an island that's not very large, there's not necessarily a lot of food. And get a species, a new species arrives on that island. And within that species, there's some diversity of size genes. Well, which ones are going to do well? The ones who need lots of food because they're big or the ones who need little food because they're small? Obviously, the smaller ones. And so we see example after example all over the world of island dwarfism. This is an example of natural selection. The organism that is better suited to the environment tends to have more offspring. Yeah, yeah I do believe. And it doesn't take too long 
for the whole population just to shrink in size and boom, now we have these little elephants and these little tapers or the opposite, we have the, the big Komodo dragons. So what we're seeing, Rob, we've thrown in multiple things that can cause a creature to respond, change, inbuilt, mm-hmm. environment, epigenetics. We talked about dwarfism. I mean, incredible diversity we see on our planet. And that was my point before. None of that takes God by surprise. We marvel at all of the incredible variety. But one of the things we do know is that there was that inbuilt variety, that inbuilt ability for God to allow these animals to survive and adapt in these different environments. To me, either way you argue, it's a design argument. And it speaks of purposeful design and creation when we look at all the variety we have on this earth. And again, that's just glory to God. So in the end, natural selection is not anti-Bible, and it's not even pro-evolution. And program filling is a wonderful and brilliant idea that has only limited application. Specifically, it applies beautifully to the pre-fall world. But after the fall, we have, yeah, we have program filling, animals making choices and inbuilt you know, responses to the environment. But we also have death we have suffering, we have decay, we have to put those things together. And so, you know, natural selection pretty much goes on steroids after the fall. And because now we have life and death decisions, not just, you know, easy, where do I want to live decisions. Yeah, the fall is bringing huge pressures on all organisms in our environment. Yeah. So in the end, we have multiple hypotheses, we have multiple ideas, and this is a good, healthy situation. We need to be discussing these things And we need to be openly critical of each other so that we can take the biblical model and help it to progress over time. So in the end, natural selection is not a foe of creation. It's not even a friend of evolution. Program filling is part of the biblical model, but it's only a limited part. It doesn't go as far as some of the advocates would like it to go. So again, Rob, we covered a lot of ground and to scratch the surface on a lot of topics. Again, people need to go to creation.com. There's almost 15,000 articles there, over 40 years worth of creation research. The search engine is your friend, ladies and gentlemen. Don't forget to share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified of all of our future podcasts. Besides the creation talk, don't forget our article podcast, which is great for you to listen to while you're driving the car or perhaps in lockdown as we are at the time this broadcast is being filmed. So thanks a lot, Rob. Appreciate you being here. And thanks to everybody out there. We'll see you next time.